My feet that morning ran faster than my sandals ought to. I remember telling everybody I saw what had happened. You see, after Jesus, my master was crucified. It was all over. I mean, were we wrong about him? We must have been. I mean, he was dead. But then Sunday, a group of us women went to the tomb to go and prepare Jesus' body with spices and ointments. I ran so fast from that tomb to go and tell the disciples what had happened, but, well, they wouldn't believe me. A massive tombstone moved. Roman soldiers silenced. A blinding angels. A discarded grave clothes that were neatly folded as if to say that they had a secret to tell. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then an empty tomb holds a thousand promises. So, I ask you, do you know what this means? It means that well, we had been waiting for a Messiah to come and restore Israel. Jesus had far exceeded all those expectations. He was a Messiah that no one could contain. It meant that what we had lost, God could restore. He lives so that we can live too. Not even the doors of death could shut out the certainty of life with Jesus. I ask you, what rival can stand against us? Kings, powers to be, presidents? Our lowest lows are our, our highest highs. What is now or what is to come? None of it can make that tomb less empty. Jesus softened the blow of death. He swallowed my defeat in his victory. I don't have all the answers, but standing next to those discarded clothes, those secret keeping pieces of cloth, the secret's out. He wasn't dead. He hadn't been taken. He wasn't missing. He was alive. He had walked out of that tomb, leaving death and those grave clothes behind. If there is something to be had, it is him. If, if there is hope in this world to be had, its name is Jesus Christ. He is alive. Our Messiah, my Messiah, is alive. The secret's out. Great job, Kelly. Wow, a lot of you here this morning. It's <laughs> good want to remind you that we are taking signups. If you are interested in drama, you can sign up and we'll let you know when we're going to get together and do some things uh, along that line. And even as this drama started to, to unfold, you know, what we are here for, I, I love that if a picture paints a thousand words in an empty tomb, a thousand promises. I've always wondered... What does the resurrection have to do with me? I know it was something that we celebrated. It's a holiday that Christians have recognized. But how does it affect my life today where I'm at? Is it something that just took place years ago that we remember? Or is it something that reverberates throughout time and affects us today. And really, that's what we're here this morning to talk about, is how resurrection isn't just an event, but we are talking about what it is to be alive. And so 
we're going to share a little video with some people from our community that have a story to tell and how Jesus being alive has actually brought life to them as well. So let's watch it together. Thank the three of you for sharing and opening up and allowing us to see a little bit of what's happened in your life and your story. We are grateful. And from that, we are encouraged and strengthened. You see, this story is not about a single event. It's about what that event has started. And the same Spirit, the scripture tells us, that raised Jesus from the dead is able to quicken or give life to your spirit, to my spirit. And so that's to give us life now. It's to help us where we're at now. It is not something that we just wait for after we die. There's supposed to be life that takes place now. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Luke chapter 24 and go to the the next slide. And Luke chapter 24, we have an account of the resurrection by Luke. And there are some interesting things that take place in this chapter. In verse 1, it starts off and it says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. One of the things that is interesting about this account is Luke starts off and he talks about the women that came to the tomb. Now, It has to be noted that the men are nowhere to be found. The men are hiding. The men are afraid. The women are fierce. Can I get an amen, ladies? Can I? Okay. (laughs) Let you guys talk about this on the way home, you couples. The women don't care about their self-preservation they, they want to go to the tomb. And so we see in verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, which you would be frightened too, the women bowed with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? What kind of question is that when you're in a tomb? I'm in a tomb. What do you mean? What kind, you know, what are you asking me? Why do you look for the living among the dead? I'm not. I'm looking for the dead among the dead. What are you talking about? And all of a sudden this conversation is taking place as if they should know something that is going on. That they should be aware of what is happening. He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified and on the third day raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others 
It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women. Pause there. Mm -hmm. Did I get up? Mm -hmm. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. One of the interesting things that is taking place here is the inclusion of the women as being the the foundation of this testimony because in Jewish culture in the first century, a woman's word was not even valuable in testimony of law. She could not testify in a case on legal matters because her voice was not recognized as legitimate. Don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger. I'm just telling you what was going on at that time. So why would Luke have the women being the ones who gave the account? If they're not the ones who are recognized, wouldn't it be better to to give someone who is substantial, to, to give one of these cowardly men the voice and let them know that, no, the guys came up. Why would he start here with the women Except maybe just that's how it happened. And from the very get-go, we start to see that this story is just not one that you would put together if you were trying to prove something. This story is messy. This story has a lot of interesting and just curious things happening in it. And it just continues from here. Go to the next slide, and we see in verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So you have the women going, expecting to find the body, not finding the body, having these gleaming beings tell him he's not here, he's risen. They run, the men don't believe them, so they go to check it out. And Peter gets in there and he doesn't see the body. And so he starts to wonder to himself, what is happening? There is confusion. They don't get it. They don't understand what is happening. And you see from the very beginning that this story goes very deep as they're curious, as it's the testimony of those who shouldn't have the testimony and those who are the followers of Jesus who should know are curious and confused. And then Luke shifts and he moves into a different part. And you can go to the next slide. And we see in verse 13, all of a sudden we're on the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, we have to get an understanding. These two men were followers of Jesus. They were a part of probably many who were following Jesus. There were the inner circle, the 12, and then there's these two. We don't know exactly who they are, but they were probably wandering from village to village following Jesus because villages were pretty small then, maybe 120 people, maybe a big village would have a couple hundred people. And these men left their place 
to go and follow Jesus. And so whatever their livelihood was, they, they left it and they said, we're not going to be fisher anymore, fishermen anymore. We're not going to be carpenters, whatever it is. We're going to follow this man, Jesus, because Jesus, we believe, is the Messiah. And now he's dead and they're going back. Imagine what that's going to look like when you get home. So, how'd it work out for you in that Jesus? Come back, huh? I told you, shouldn't go following messiahs, because there were a lot of people who claimed to be messiah. This wasn't the first one. And most of them ended up dead. And so imagine that walk back home. Probably taking their time, not really anxious to get back home and answer to all those people who they left and said, what happened? Where's your Messiah now? And as they're heading back, Jesus shows up, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, this is one of these interesting things. There's in John's gospel, it talks about Mary seeing him and thinking he's the gardener. Don't you just hate it when you rise from the dead and people think you're the gardener? It's just so disconcerting. I saw a video not too long ago where they took family members and they put them in clothes like they were homeless and sat them down on the sidewalk and their family members would walk by them and you could actually see them turn and look at them square in the face and then just keep walking. Brothers, sisters, a husband and his wife Walks by, looks at her. She's got a hat on, but you can clearly see her face. He sees her and he just keeps walking and he doesn't even realize it's his wife. They're his brothers, the uncles and family. And then they get past and they show this video. Hey, we want to show you something. And they see, oh my gosh, that's my family. And the point of the video was to show how we see people as invisible You know, I don't see my family in this context, and so I block out of my mind what isn't there. And we can do that even through hypnosis, where we can stop thinking something because of something that is planted in our minds. And so they were kept from recognizing him. And this is Jesus just messing with them, really. Okay, this is Jesus kind of moving into the scene, and he's getting them to understand just what is happening here as they're walking with them. And so we see as it goes on and he tells the story, he asked them what they're talking about. They said, you know, are you just stranger here? Don't you know all that's been happening in Jerusalem these past few days, the things that have been taking place? And then Jesus goes, oh, what things? Come on, you know, it's like, why would you act that? And what's great is later on, Further down in verse 28, as they approached the village which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. He's playing with them, okay? He's going, okay, I'll see you guys later. Ta-da, you know, bye. And he pretends he's going to keep going. And they said, hey, wait. We like what you're saying. Why don't you come and sit down with us? And so he does go to the next slide and it says in verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him 
and he disappeared from their sight. What strange events are taking place? You would think if the Messiah had come and had risen from the dead, first of all, he would do it to people who were reputable in a court situation who could give valid testimony, but he does it he does it before the women. Those who were closest to him are confused, wondering what's going on. He walks, but he's not recognized with a couple of the disciples who had probably seen him here and there, but they don't see him in this situation. He pretends he's going on, but he stays with them. And then when he starts breaking the bread, their eyes are open. Now, in first century Jerusalem, the Jewish culture, bread was a really big deal. They weren't worried about gluten. There was no paleo going on. Bread was the main sustenance, especially for people who were impoverished. And bread was seen as a gift from God because God had to provide the rain, there had to be the sun, it had to be the dirt, and this bread was the fruit of God's goodness to his people. And, and so when they would get together and they would break bread together, it was a common thing. The family would come together in this agricultural society. You only eat if the land produces fruit. You only eat if there's going to be rain. And so when you eat, you are grateful. You are thankful. And there was a saying, every table is an altar. Because at every table, we are able to give thanks to God for what he's done. We are revived. We're gathered with our family, the ones we love. There was a prayer that they used to pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, for giving us bread from the earth. So many of their traditions, their rituals, involved the eating, the breaking of bread, because this was a festival. This was a celebration. This was a recognition that God loves you, that God is good, that he provides good things to us. Bread and the breaking of bread was a scene, it was seen as a sacred gift from God. And at this moment, things become clear to them. It's interesting because Jesus rises from the dead and he doesn't give a theological discourse. He, he doesn't go to them and he rises from the dead and he says, okay, guys, get ready to leave. Next ship takes off at noon. We're out of here. He doesn't hand them a B-I-B-L-E. This is the basic instructions before leaving earth. He actually sits there and breaks bread with them, connects them to the goodness of God, something that is sacred, something that they are to enjoy right there, right then. And if you study scripture, you understand that the story begins in Genesis here on earth, that God creates everything and it is good. And he creates man and woman and it's very good. 
And then we see that God establishes on earth a tabernacle and a temple where his presence is. And then we see that Jesus himself says his body is now this temple. He is now the presence of God here on earth. And even in Revelation, there is a new heaven and a new earth that takes place here. You see, we've got it in our mind that this is just a place that we're going to leave and then someday we're going to live out on the clouds somewhere. But that's not what the scriptures say. We're not going to live somewhere outer space. There is actually the new earth that is our home where God brings things here. And so the life that is supposed to take place isn't supposed to take place when you die. Someday you hope you go on and get this life. It's supposed to be a life that takes place right here. Now, you might do destructive things while you're here and abuse this world, abuse your body. Those are things that have happened. Those are things that continue to happen. But a recap of what has happened here, Jesus has done something and is bringing them to a place where they could recognize him right where they live. Now, I thought it would be fun, and actually more than fun, I thought it would be useful to what I'm trying to get to, to go back and look at some of the things that that Jesus has done, the things that he has that has happened to him just through this gospel in Luke. Go to the next slide. We see in chapter four that his first sermon in his hometown, they wanted to take him to a cliff and throw him off. I feel better. My, my first sermon, they didn't try and kill me. They didn't try and add a service. They actually tried to kill him. Go to the next slide. And chapter 6. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Here are the political elite people. And as he goes on and starts talking and declaring these things, saying that this God that we believe in isn't a God about rules and about just doing things a certain way. This God is a God who cares, who loves and wants to know you in a personal way. And they are furious. And so what they want to do is figure out what they can do with Jesus. Go to the next slide. Chapter 11. Verses 15 to 16. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. Now, usually getting rid of demons is a good thing. Actually, always, okay? If you if you have a demon and you get rid of it, it's a good thing. It's a good day when you get rid of a demon. And instead of them saying, wow, this is an amazing thing you're doing, instead of seeing the blind healed or the lame walking, they want to know what a sign is. And so they oh, you're just casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus is like, really? Well, he didn't say that, but that's kind of a paraphrase. It's like, why would a demon want less demons? Wouldn't you want more? Doesn't make sense. And when they ask him for a sign, the only sign that he says will be given is that of death, like Jonah, and 
of the resurrection. Go to the next slide. Chapter 11, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, wanting to catch him in something that they might say. Go to the next slide. Chapter 13, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Again, recap, you live in a village, few hundred people. You probably never get to know many more people outside of that village. You might grow up your whole life and live in this village. And there's multiple villages all throughout this providence. This province. Herod is the king over all of them. Herod has an army. You have a Swiss army knife. Well, you don't even have that because they're not invented yet. You have a slingshot and some sticks. He has an army and he is gunning for you who are traveling in these small villages with a small group of people. The guy who is over this whole thing wants you dead. And so we're getting a, a little understanding of the life that Jesus is living. Okay, Herod was the ruler over that entire region. He wants you dead. Go to the next slide. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he weeps over it. Go to the next slide. In chapter 22, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Now one of your close friends, one of the people who you've been pouring your life out to, one of those who are part of the inner circle, betrays you. And, and Jesus goes on to say those famous words, do you betray me with, your, with a kiss? And, and doesn't that resonate? Have you ever been betrayed with a kiss? Your girlfriend steals your boyfriend. Or your boyfriend, I don't know, no good answer to those things. It, it, someone you love hurts you deeply and you're betrayed. And you're betrayed even with a kiss. And so this is what's taking place. Go to the next slide in verse 22, chapter 22, I mean. The men who are guarding Jesus after he is arrested and betrayed begin mocking and beating him. You're betrayed by your friends. You're taken captive. They're mocking you. They're beating you. We even see that Peter at this time says, I don't know who this man is in verse 60, chapter 22. He denies that he knows Jesus at all. We see in chapter 23 that the whole crowd is shouting, away with this man. And they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And their shouts prevail. The next slide in chapter 23. 
Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. It's not enough. You're on a cross being crucified. The guy next to you is hurling insults at you. Now, we see that through all these things, and in verse 46 of chapter 23, he breathes his last. And when you look at the life of Jesus that Luke tells, after all this, when he rises from the dead, he then sits at a table and eats bread. And we didn't even talk about before he was born when his parents were fugitives and had to run. Okay, we're not talking about the parental problems that are going on. We're we're just talking about the things that are taking place here. He's beaten, he's mocked, he's insulted, he's betrayed. His own family at one point thought he was crazy and went to go and retrieve him. See, in those days they had family conflict, not like today. I thought that would get a bigger laugh, but... (laughs) Everything that could go wrong does. He's accused, mocked, beaten, and hung on the cross. And the Romans had perfected how to kill someone slowly and painfully. They had crucified thousands upon thousands of people and they knew just what to do to keep someone alive long enough where they wouldn't go into shock and wouldn't die quickly so that they would get the most amount of pain for the time that they could to try and leave an imprint on the people who were there. This is what happens if we don't like what you're doing. And so this is what happens. This is his story. He rises from the dead and then he breaks bread. All the words that we have of Jesus after the resurrection could be read in probably a minute. And though there are powerful theological implications, we don't see him trying to give theological discourse it's almost as if he's just saying i'm alive that's enough and instead of get ready we're gonna do this and this is what's gonna happen now now that i'm alive let me tell you what's going to happen actually he says go all power is given to me in heaven and earth go make disciples among all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all the things that I have told you. And it's almost as if him being alive is enough. And one of the things he does is he breaks bread. Another time we see him, he's cooking fish. He's eating. I like that. But what does it mean? Why why would you choose, if you've got a, a little bit of time to spend with some people, why would you choose breaking bread? Why would you choose sitting down and eating with them? Because this is a symbol that God is good. 
that God has provided. And you got to think, if you endure the worst that a human being could endure and survive, then you're a dangerous person. If you could endure all that he went through, the harassment, the threats, people hunting him down to kill him, being betrayed by your friends, being mocked, beaten, crucified, a slow, painful death. If you can endure all that and come out victorious, you're dangerous because what can they do to you? You better stop. We're going to kill you. Again. Been there. Done that. You see, if you can conquer all these things, if the worst that could happen has happened and you survive, then you don't have to fear what could happen. You don't have to be afraid of the future. You're fearless. So you do what is important. You sit with the ones you love. You break bread and acknowledge that life is a gift from God. And what he's telling them is you don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be afraid anymore. And we see this transformation. These men who are cowering, hiding in rooms, fearful, all of a sudden have this boldness. Why? Because we don't have to be afraid anymore. Have you ever known someone or talked to someone who has survived cancer? There is something that changes in them. There is a new outlook on life. When when they are diagnosed as the cancer is remission, they don't say, I got to go out and work more. They're not worried about certain things that used to be so important. They start becoming very concerned about the things that are important, being with the family and loving and and caring about things that have deeper meaning. It's like they're given a new lot in life and all of a sudden it's almost as if they're really aware of what is happening. They're more alive than they've ever been because they almost died and they were aware of it and now they recognize how precious life really is. They have the different outlook on life and they don't want to waste that life. See, if you conquer death, you're really alive. Now, a lot of us live with fear or we live with regret. Go to the next slide. You see, regret is something that keeps us stuck in the past. When you're regretting, you're locked into the things that have happened in the past. When you're fearful or worrying, you're concerned about things that are in the future. And what's happening is when you're either stuck in the past or troubled in the future, that they both keep you from fully living in the present. And how many of us live in regret? 
How many of us are regretting things that we've done, choices that we've made, a life that we've lived? How many of us live with this fear that the the shoe is going to fall, that it's going to drop? And and man, what will happen if I go to the doctor and I get diagnosed with this? What happens if I lose my job? What happens if these happen? And we're so worried about the future that we find we're not really fully living right here. We're not living right now. I, I regret, I regret what I've done. I'm afraid of what might come. I'm afraid I'm going to live in a box under the freeway because I've lost everything. And we become paralyzed. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, that will never happen to you. See, it could happen. You could lose your job. Your boyfriend could break up with you. Your girlfriend could leave you. You could find out that you have cancer. Those things happen. It's something we know far too well. It could happen, but you can still live a fierce and powerful life that you don't have to be afraid. You see, Jesus calls us to die to that fear, to die to that regret, to give up the life of worry so that even if you lose your job or even if you are diagnosed with MS and find yourself in a wheelchair, you can still be free. That you don't have to be living in fear. And if we could die to that part that needs to control the future, you can really start to live. We're so worried about how we feel. We're so worried about what we, what people think of us. We're so worried about what, how we look. Some of you were late this morning because you were so worried about how you looked before you got here. We, we worry about so many things, right? If you're not saying right, you're lying. I know you. We do. We worry about these things. And religion for so long has told us that if you believe in Jesus, then when you die, you can go and be with him. But Jesus invites us to a table to break bread and say, there is a gift that God wants to give you, and it is to be alive right now, that the worst that could happen to you has happened to me and I am here and I'm not afraid of the future. And you can do the same because I will give you this same life. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is not to be just an event that happened. It is to be an event that happened so that we could live fearless lives because he lives. We know we're alive also that I don't have to worry about these things that will happen, that I can be fearless and know that even if they happen, even if those things that could come upon me and worry me, so I don't have to live to those things. In fact, I can die to them right now and I can live with purpose and meaning because I can recognize that life is a gift. I can break the bread right now and say, God, you have given me this 
I can be here present, fully alive because you are alive. It's not something that is going to happen to us someday. We're supposed to live a fierce, powerful life now. He calls us to die to that fear, to die to that regret, to give up a life of worry. Jesus would go on and he'd tell parables, these stories about the coin that was lost and the woman swept the house to find that coin. When she found it, she rejoiced and talks about the sheep. And when that one just wanders off, the the shepherd would leave the 99 and go and find that one about the son who squandered his inheritance, left his father, wandered away, and then who came back, found his home again. When they asked him, give us a sign. Prove you're as awesome as you say you are. It's my translation. Prove that you're the son of God. He said, here's the sign. Destroy this temple, my body, death. In three days, I will rebuild it. I will be alive. Do the worst you can do because it will not stop the life that God has given me. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you can actually happen. Jesus is asking you, die to that fear so that you can actually live. We, we go through life like a roller coaster. At least I do. It's like we're white knuckling it. I got it. Oh no! What if this happens? What? Oh, it's gonna happen. When you go down and you, ah, okay, I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. Oh no! Here comes another. And we worry about so many things that we're living life paralyzed, holding on for dear life, praying, God, just deliver me. God, just deliver me. But real life that Jesus invites us into cannot be taken away. The real life that God wants us to, persecution won't stop it. Sickness won't stop it. Betrayal won't stop it. Not even death can stop it. What should that do to us? What kind of people should we be if death itself cannot stop the life? You see, the best way to know that you have life after death is to have real life before death. And that's what Jesus is giving us. He's calling you and he's saying, sit down. I want to break bread. And as he breaks that bread, they say, I know you. It's him. It's him. And so God wants to sit down with you. And through all the worries and fears that you have and thinking, oh man, he's dead, he's gone, he's powerless, he can no longer help me. He wants to sit you down at a table and he wants you to break bread so that you would know that God is still good, that he gives life, that it rains on the just and the unjust, that God is still good, even past 
the betrayal, even past the brutality, even past death. You can have hope. You don't have to live in regret. You don't have to live in fear because it's been dealt with. You can be fierce and alive. And that's what they were. And that's what resurrection is to be. The opportunity to be really alive. Because he lives. We live also. Let's pray. Father, I know there are many here this morning who are living with regret, who are living with fear. Maybe some have found out that they are ill or that someone they love is ill. And it hurts. And Jesus, you wept. The weeping isn't going to go away. The the pain doesn't go away. But God, you still break bread and give us life here. So Father, I pray for those who are struggling in these areas that they would find your life here and now. And as we move forward, I want to take an opportunity to allow you to come to this life. And so maybe you're living with regret of things that have happened and that regret has paralyzed you. That regret has held on to you and will not let go. It is a, you're a slave to this regret. You're afraid to be free because you you feel guilty what you've done. You're you're held captive by your past. And if that's you and you recognize that you're a slave to the regret and you want to be free, would you stand with me? I just want to pray for you and acknowledge that I'm not going to live in that regret anymore. I'm not going to let that take away the life that I have right now. And some of you... The future is terrifying. There might be circumstances at work. There might be circumstances at home. There might be health issues. But the future to you is just a fearful place. And it too is holding you captive. And Jesus is calling you to to die now to that fear. Saying you don't have to live afraid. I give you life. I have been there. I have been through it. And look it. I'm alive. So if you're afraid of the future, what's going to happen? Would you stand and let's just release that fear again. Allow God to take our lives here today. Maybe some of you are here and you're puzzled just like Peter, saying, I don't get this. I don't understand 
This story is so strange. I have so many questions. But your soul is telling you this is what you need. Your your soul is shouting to your heart saying, this is the life you've been looking for. And maybe you don't get it and maybe you have questions, but something inside of you is saying, it's time to acknowledge this. And if you'd like to acknowledge Jesus now, would you stand up with us? Say, yeah, it's time. I don't want to wrestle against this anymore. Father, we are here standing because we have been held captive by regret. We have been paralyzed by our fear or we've been living in doubt. But God, right now we want to break bread with you. We want to see that you have conquered and you invited us to sit down and to tell us, don't be afraid. I am with you till the end. And whoever lives and believes in me will not die. Whoever dies believing in me will live. Lord, we believe this. And may this new life allow us to live fierce and powerful, unshackled and unafraid. If you are for us, who can be against us? What can man do? God, may we live in the freedom of your goodness, your love, your mercy. May we live in the freedom of your life. In Jesus' name, amen.